sometimes it can get a little bit treacherous as we're drinking here. Well, we've been in Galatians for a little while, haven't we? And so you're probably getting tired of this intro verse, but tough. This is the way Paul introed Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him and are turning to the... And, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And for a little while, we've been talking about that contrast, right? That burden of what's there. Paul saying, I delivered you good news. You've replaced what was good for something that wasn't even just like less good. It was just entirely fake. It's news to be sure, but it's no longer good because it all revolved around this misunderstanding of the law. Think of the way that the law has been. And just so we're very aware, it's not often that we want to pay a lot of attention to the person back there in the booth. But I will say that Isaac has a challenge today because we normally have, I think, about 30 to 40 slides. And today we are kissing 60. So Isaac's going to have a lot of work to do because, don't worry, we're going to get through most of them very quickly. Watch. A person is not justified by the works of the law, point one. Uh, through the law, I died to the law, boom, two. Uh, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, boom, three. Did you not receive, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Do you see what Paul's doing in this conversation about the law? It's like everything we're hearing about the law, the law, the law has been kind of like negative, and he keeps going. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Are you kidding? Yes, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous live by faith, but the law is not a faith. So it's got to make you ask some sort of a question inside, right? Then, why then the law? Now, Isaac, good job. You made your way through that. It's very nice. Except for the challenge continues because what we want to actually do in identifying what the law is, is kind of peel our minds away from what we might think of. If I were to say, all right, kids, we're in class. This is the first day of school. Here are the laws that will dictate our, you know, behavior in class. You're probably going to think primarily just rules, right? In fact, if we were to think about this, we would probably think a little bit of the law itself as uh, uh, some of the other words that you might have heard. The Torah, right? A word that is translated a little bit more as instruction or teaching, but really is summarized as the books of Moses or what we've called the Pentateuch, which is basically just saying five books, right? Pentagon, Penta, you know, Graham, um, here we are, the Pentateuch, the first five books. The books from Genesis through Deuteronomy, those are usually what are law referred to as the law. So sometimes you'd hear Jesus talk about the law and the prophets. The prophets kind of refers to everything that's, sometimes it can kind of include a little bit of the, poet, the poetic books, but generally means everything that we would consider the historical books, Right, So everything written by prophets, but about the time of the judges or the time of Samuel or the time of the kings. Um, all the way through the actual writings of the prophets. You have the law here and the prophets kind of represents the rest of, in some you know, shorthand form, uh, the book of, of um, the rest of the Hebrew Bible. But when we think about these first five books, one of the things that I've I've really tried to dive into a little bit more this week is what is it about those first five books that actually is the stuff that just feels like county ordinances and regulations? And if you really think about it, actually of the law, if we started in Genesis and went all the way through Deuteronomy, we don't get a ton of just codes, do we? Most of it, is actually a story. Now, there are parts that involve a lot of stuff that's kind of tough to plow through. Some of the ordinances and the codes for priests and tabernacle and that kind of thing. Um, maybe the censuses and numbers. Those would be tough stuff to read through. But generally, what Moses gave to the people was a narrative. The law is a story that runs from Genesis 
through Deuteronomy, and yet in some ways as well, what you find when you see the structure of the law is that it actually moves in kind of a bracketed way. It's bordered and boundaried in some ways where Genesis kind of mirrors what we see in Deuteronomy in, in a very interesting, here's a little interesting note. Genesis ends with uh, Jacob blessing his kids, right? He's the end of the family. Joseph's kind of the end of the family. But Jacob, renamed Israel, is blessing his children. And we read this. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And he goes through and he gives a blessing that kind of, you know, is specific for each one of his children and the families that are coming from them. Deuteronomy ends in, in strangely, an interesting way. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. And then some of his blessing is actually very similar to what we had there from, from Jacob. So you've got stories in Genesis. You've got an account of things that has some law in Deuteronomy, but it also has a lot of story that's in there. Moving in on both sides, you get um, Exodus and Numbers, and Exodus ends with this really interesting dilemma, right? If you were any other Canaanite, if you were anybody else in, in that day, if you were one of the Egyptians, the question is, how can I kind of ascend to God? How can I make my way to God? But that's not the story of, Genesis, or of Exodus, is it? Exodus is more the story of how will God sort of leave the heavens and dwell among his people. It's not as though we have to climb some sort of tower of Babel to get up to God. The story of Exodus is how is God going to come down and actually be among his people? And yet Exodus ends with this, this problem. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. I can't tell you how many times I've read that and just kind of blown past it. But then the book of Numbers, the next real narrative in this, starts and it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So why is it that God would set up all of this, call people to his mountain, call Moses up the mountain, instruct the people at the mountain, tell him he wants to go with them, and here's the way he's going to go with them. I'm going I'm to live among you. Your entire camp is going to be set up. My entire tent is going to be set up so that I can be with my people. The one that he told Pharaoh were his firstborn. He wanted to dwell among them, and yet at the very end, he can't. Why not? But then in Numbers, Moses is apparently able to enter into the tent and to commune with God. Well, what happened? Well, Leviticus happened. Leviticus, the book that you might think of when we say the law, that might be the one that comes to mind because it does. It has all the kind of ordinance, rule, law, commandment kind of stuff that's in there. But even Leviticus is structured a little bit in a bracketed way. It begins with these ritual kind of sacrifices and it ends with these ritual feasts. It moves in through the book then where we've got the, uh, the priests who were then ordained and set up, Aaron and his family and his sons, and how are they set in to do their job in the tabernacle? But then that's bracketed at the end by all these kind of ways in which the priests are supposed to behave, what they're supposed to wear. So you've got the priests being ordained, and then you've got them sort of trained at the end. You've got laws in the middle about purity, both ritual purity in the beginning and kind of moral purity at the end. And at the center of it all in the book of Leviticus is one feast, the Day of Atonement. What we've heard probably in our day is Yom Kippur. That's the structure, if we just look at it on its own, of the law. A story that ends with one man blessing his family. A story that ends with another man blessing a nation. The question of how God could live among his people and the sad rejection of the fact that those people can't actually get to where they want to get to because of 
their disobedience. In fact, if we were to think about the law and we just track the story of the law, we don't find as many rules and ordinances and things to do. We find more a story of God presenting himself, a sense that the things seem to be going well until somebody screws up. In fact, think about the way that in the book of Genesis, everything is botched. We have story after story of failure, right? From Eden, what do we have? God among his people, and yet, no, it's not going to work out. What is the end of that story? A flaming sword and two angels keeping the people away from God's presence, right? And yet, the promise in the middle of it of someone who was going to come and was going to actually be the human being who would, in some senses, be like the first legit human being. Adam, not really the first legit human being, blameless in the beginning, but screwing up his opportunities. And then every other, what would seem like a hero that gets introduced to us in the book of Genesis, winds up being just another Adam, just another mess up. So from Noah, blameless in the beginning to at the very end, sort of drunk in his own tent, naked and embarrassed. Sound familiar? Abraham, good guy, seems to follow God, but boy, does he blow it. His son repeats the family uh, kind of mistake, right, of using his wife to protect him whenever things get dangerous. My wife's pretty. I'll trade her for my safety. Oh, these are two horrible guys we meet. Are these the fulfillment of the promise from Eden that God was going to do what he was going to do to finally bring about the righteous human being? In the book of Genesis, we just get no, 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 absolutely not. None of these guys are going to make it work. Even the whole nation is named after a guy who in the beginning has the name Deceiver. He's one who grabs the heel. Does that sound at all familiar? What does the serpent do? He's going to be the one who nabs at your heel. This law isn't so much just a presentation of all the rules. It's a story of a God who wants to live with his people and his people who keep blowing it. Even Exodus is marked by, and you have to ask the question, why can't God be with his people. Why is God here, but Moses on the outside? Well, Exodus 32 kind of sums it up, doesn't it? What did Israel do given their freedom, given the provision in the wilderness, given protection and given God's revelation of his character and his desires at Mount Sinai? What do they do? They can't wait 40 days before they're just trading all that away and saying, let's go back to the cows. Let's go back to the the puppet masters in in Egypt. That's what we want. We want, because we had leeks back then, like good food. This exodus is just marked by failure. Even when we get into this, like this cycle of what's going on in Leviticus, when God obviously is trying to live with his people and God's setting up parameters for how his people are going to live with him, What do you have? You have the priests, the sons of Aaron who are set in place. And what do they do? They blow it. They ignore all the rules. They march into the tabernacle and they're dead. What does God do next? Well, he gives laws about how to deal with dead bodies because we've got a couple of them right there. Another failure right at that moment. And if, if all of Israel is supposed to watch the Levites as they carry the presence of God in the tabernacle, what does God say to all the Israelites? You be very careful about my name. Why? Because you are carrying me with you when you go. The Levites carry the tent, but the people of God carry the name. And what happens at the end of that? One of their very own, right there at the end of that time in the book of Leviticus, one of their very own slanders the name. And God had just previously said in the midst of these other, after the priests are trained and the feasts and the rituals are kind of put out there, there's this one story again of one guy who profanes the name of God in the middle of an argument. And God had just said, 
You know that everybody in your day, they, they live in such a way that if you poke out one of my eyes, um, I'm, I'm going to go after your two eyes. Or if whatever the I can do, you did to me, I'm going to do back to you. We're going to ramp up the intensity of revenge and retribution. That's just the law of the day. And God is limiting that. In, this, in Leviticus, he's saying, no, 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 no. No, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If there's going to be repayment, let it be proportional repayment. But if you take a life, your life will be required. And then right after the, that is this story of this guy who profanes God's name. And what do they do? They take his life. What's God saying? This is a, this is a big deal. The way you bear and carry my name among the people, it is the same capital offense as what I just said was okay for taking a life. But what's happening all throughout it? The people are just failing. Get into the book of Numbers. What's the main thing that happens in the book of Numbers? The 12 spies go in, everybody's ready, and everybody believes the 10 spies over the two, right? Why? Because the people of God are not going to trust God anymore. Failure. Even Moses. So what, what happens at the end of that? The people don't get to go into the land of Canaan. They, that whole generation, is going to die out in the desert and their kids will go. And even Moses doesn't get to go. So that at Deuteronomy, it's his final words. Even the one to lead them through the Red Sea doesn't get to see the promise because of his failure. But he, by the way, great job, Isaac. This is the law. This is what we've been talking about in Galatians. Ordinances, yes. Rules, yes. But in light of everything that God has revealed about himself, and in light of everything, every opportunity that people have had, and the way that they fail, what is at the very center of all of it? The Day of Atonement. There it is. The one day in which two goats are brought... And the priest said, we will transfer all of our sins onto this one. And he will symbolically take away all of our guilt, all that you deserve because of what you did and didn't do this year. And we are going to send all of those sins outside the camp into the wilderness. It's going to take our sins from us. But then what's left? Well, a blameless one needs to be killed, and its blood brought into the most holy place. An animal without fault, the blood of the blameless one needs to be brought into God's presence so that that can then represent us coming into God. That's not a bad day. Not in light of an entire set of five books that do nothing but highlight God's faithfulness, his desire to be among his people, and his people's stubborn generation after generation refusal to live in a blameless and an upright way, to be the one person or the one generation who actually trusts and follows God. The law. On one level, when you heard Psalm 119 read, and I, I, somebody, I think Keith, Keith was telling me that this came up in a, in a small group. I, I read 119, and I'm like, what, what is there about the law to delight in? And who delights over city ordinances and driving regulations and how you get your permit and how you do this? That doesn't sound delightful. But if the law is primarily the story that the God who made everything, the, the absolute center of all glory in all creation, wants to come and live with his people and doesn't just give them three strikes and then they're out, but generation after generation shows his faithfulness to keep his promise, isn't that the kind of God I would want to delight in getting to know as revealed in this law? 
But more than that, across all of this, there's another point that we just have gotten so inoculated to that as I was listening to a couple of podcasts this week, I was just like, oh my goodness, you're right. It's how ridiculous the concept of the law really is. In fact, we sing so many songs about this that's become part of our language. But do you ever recognize the fact that you talk about getting clean by getting bloody? Like, I haven't been around a lot of blood in my life. But the times that I was, I wanted it to be cleaned up immediately. And yet what we say is blood cleans, blood purifies. If we can just back up for a second from all of our Christian tradition and from our familiarity with the law, can't we say that's kind of a ridiculous concept? Let me give you another ridiculous concept. There is a God whose essence is practically indescribable so that when anybody gets close to his glory, they are lost for words. They use a mess of words like, like, as, and sort of, kind of, in this nature. And then they talk about fire and gleaming light and lava and smoke and, and big stuff, but they don't have the right word. And the reason they don't have the right word is because at the heart of the glory of God is something where God says to Moses, if I show you me, you're dead. That's just the way this works. But we, for many, many years, some of us, have believed that a small piece of fabric was going to protect an entire nation, two and a half million people, from that presence of God. That's what the tabernacle is. Do you see how ridiculous this idea is? If I told you, oh, by the way, we put some nuclear material right there in the center. Jenna, how you doing? There you go. Think about how you felt about a little virus when we were trying to figure out what protects us from each other, right? There's a certain nature that when we were talking about COVID and when we're talking about, about something like nuclear material, there's a certain sense where you're going like, wait, that's going to protect me from that? I, I, don't, I don't get it. And rather than bringing us back into all that, I just want to kind of point out that all of that pales in comparison to the idea that the God of the universe could exist among his people and the only thing that protects them is some layers of fabric over a tent that pretty quickly a group of people could set up and take down. I mean, I don't have a lot of camping analogies because I don't camp a lot, but I used to camp a lot. And back in the day when I used to camp, especially during my freshman year in Wisconsin, there was a night we were all out in our tents, right? And I, not to throw my friend under the bus, but you don't know him, so we'll just call him Bill. That's not his name. It's Chuck. But that's all right. We're going to call him Bill. <laughs> and Bill was there, and all of a sudden, we're just kind of lying there. We're talking, you know, things that guys are talking about, people they like and stuff like that. And people are, you know, just talking about the stuff that you're talking about when you're sleepy and you're out in the woods, you know. And all of a sudden, we heard this like, it was really, it's really hard to imitate this sound, but it was loud, obvious, and nobody talked after we heard it. Like, nobody talked. And we're all quiet, but we're also men, right? And so none of us is wanting to admit, I'm a little scared by what I just heard, except for Bill. Chuck. And Bill said, it's a wolf. It's a coyote. We're going to die. And it, the noise went out again. And, you know, and, and Bill's just having trouble here. He's, he, but the problem is he was articulating exactly what the rest of us were thinking. We were a little terrified about what was actually out there until on the like third call across the lake and the third response from Bill, one of my other friends was trying to go to sleep. He goes, Chuck, sorry, Bill, it's a duck. Go to sleep. <laughs> we're like, oh, we're hearing a loon. That's what we were all so scared about. But at that moment, had this been some sort of a howling werewolf bear kind of thing that all of us were envisioning, what we knew at that moment was the very thing that any child afraid of the monsters under the bed doesn't know but knows but doesn't know, which is that fabric can't protect me. 
That's why Jim Gaffigan says, yes, this is a great idea. Let's go camping and roll ourselves up like burritos for the bears. Because no bear is going to come to my tent and be like, oh, dear, what am I going to do? He's got some nylon protecting him, right? He'd go through the tent, he'd go through my sleeping bag, and I would be dead if it were, in fact, a coyote or a bear and not a duck. Do you see what I'm kind of getting at at the tabernacle? This is the radioactive presence of the glory of God, and we're saying that some fabric protects it. Guys, all throughout the story of the law, all throughout the Torah, the books of Moses, all throughout what we get in these first five books, faith is everywhere, isn't it? You're telling me I could do bad things and I kill an animal and its blood gets sprinkled and I'm okay? You're telling me that we find one goat that we're going to lay the hands on. We're going to send it out into the wilderness. We're never going to see it again. And God is going to say, the God who killed Aaron's two sons is going to say, yeah, that works. How is it that that message gets twisted around into something we possess and own and legally, legalistically then get to obligate God with. That's the problem of Galatians. So when Paul says in the very beginning, the law, the law, the law, the law, and you're asking, what's wrong with the law? Let's get this sense. This whole V-shaped message that God wants to cast our sins far from us, and have a blameless one represent us, that's a good thing. This law and the narrative of it, of his promises kept, and our faithfulness or faithlessness on display, that message is a good message. Just like if I were to sit with my class on the first day and say, guys, each of what you are going to say this year matters. So we're going to listen. Because I care about you. I care about how much you know and don't know. And I am so excited to hear how each of you is going to grow. But to do that in a group of 2025 like this, we're going to have to find a way in order for us to listen together. Are you going to come away from that primarily hearing, all right, I know what the rules are. I have to put my hand up when I want to speak. Yeah, that's kind of it. But that's because the teacher cares about you and wants to know what you have to say and wants you to respect each other. Most Laws, most rules are kind of that way. So we're going to ask a couple questions about the law. Because this is where Paul goes in Galatians chapter 3. He starts in chapter 3, verse 15, and Isaac, we're going to have to jump back to that one. All right, you've got it? You saw that I skipped it. You knew it. There it is. He's got it. 315. Oh, what a good guy. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to, adds to it once it's been ratified. Here's an example. Once the will has been ratified by somebody dying, you don't get to go back and change the terms of it because you don't like what came out on the reading, right? Knives out, if you've seen the movie. Not that I'm saying you should, but I assume some of you have. All right, there we go. You don't take a will and get to then say, I don't like the way this worked. And now that it's actually enforced, I, 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 we're going to change it around. That's, that's not the way it works. But to move on to chapter 3, verse 16, he says, but now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, the first thing that, Moses, or that Paul wants to focus on here is the target of the law. And ask the question, this whole narrative of the law, with its rules and regulations, with its promises in there, and with its sense of people's inability to keep the law, what has it all been about? Or if we were going to ask a question, who is the law? And Paul says in the very beginning, you've been thinking it's about offsprings. But as I heard a little girl when we were at the restaurant the other day trying to make a point to her dad, 
I wasn't talking. The g was her point. It's what I wasn't doing. I wasn't talking. And Paul, in the same way, is actually saying, did, did you read the, the Torah? Have you read the Bible? Did you hear the promise that God made to Abraham? Because it was to an offspring. Singular. In other words, who the law has ultimately been about wasn't the offsprings. It was about the one. It's always been a search for the one. Was it Adam, Noah, Abraham? No. Was it any of that? No. Would it be Moses? Would it be Aaron? No. Would it be the king to come if we got ourselves all the way out into the prophets? No. The story of the Bible, the story of the Old Testament is the disappointment of getting your hopes up every single time thinking, we've got the one, we've got the one. And you're like, no, it's not. But we got the one. It does not say to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Here's the way it comes out in Genesis chapter 12. Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah and at the time of the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring I will give this land. And that if we're paying attention to what we've read in the 11 chapters before this should bring another offspring to our minds, which is exactly what God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. There will be one coming who's going to finally crush the head of the serpent. There will be one coming who will live like a true human, who will actually be the fulfillment of the law. And the truth is, it was nobody in the law. Which is why it's so weird when you hear the Pharisees say, we'd like to attach ourselves to Abraham and we'd like to be children of Abraham. And you're like, man, you sure could have picked somebody better. That's why the whole book of Hebrews is written, taking down all the ones of the past and saying it wasn't that one, it was to be this one. And if you think we're making too big an argument, Paul's getting too much into the grammar of it. Like, you seriously, you're going to make your whole point off the lack of an S? The absent S is going to be the thing that's really going to drive your point home? I, I don't think he's inventing it. I think Jesus said this specifically. After his resurrection, Jesus met a couple on a road, and as he's dealing with them and their grief because we, they said, we thought he was the one. We thought he would be the one. We thought he was like the fulfillment of the offspring thing. And yet, it didn't work out. He died and we're bummed. And Jesus says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, beginning with the law and the prophets, he in interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is Paul's point. This story, this narrative was about Jesus from the beginning. That's the way it's supposed to create yearning and gratitude and delight in you is we get the sense of all the things we want. We want a good prophet. We want a king who's going to lead us. We want a priest who's going to be faithful and truly blameless in and of himself. And there wasn't a single one in the entire story until Jesus. That's Paul's first point, is that the target of the law relates to the who of the law. The, the next question might be summed up if you said something like, well, Paul's going to talk about when is the law then or the timing of the law. Verse 17, he says this. This is, this is what I mean. Now, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. He's going back to his point on the will, right? If, if the covenant's in place and it's been ratified, you're not going to change it around. The law can't change the covenant ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, or sorry, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You get the timing of what he's trying to say? You guys look at everything that came through Abraham, right? You guys look at everything that God promised to him. Chapter 12, I will be with you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing to basically the entire planet. Chapter 15, I know you just lost some land, but don't worry. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. I am going to be with you, and I'm going to do what I promised a few chapters ago. Chapter 17, after the whole fiasco of what's going to happen, which mom is going to be the one through whom God's going to fulfill his promise? He's saying, oh, boy, you got to keep waiting. What has God required Abraham to do in any of that? Nothing. And if it needed to be more clear, the way covenants were cut in the Old Testament, the way deals were signed, it wasn't by spitting on your hand and shaking. It wasn't by doing some sort of a a blood pact or something along those lines. And it certainly wasn't by you putting your name down in signature as though you were buying a house or signing some sort of a contract. It was by taking animals, slicing them in half, and putting them in, in rows so that they created something like what the bride walks through at a wedding, something along those lines. Looking forward to that there, right? I wouldn't say we should use this as a theme, by the way. But the idea is to look at these dead animals and say, if I break my promise, let what happens to me, or let what happened to them be done to me. And so in any other covenant, the two parts would walk through those animals and would say, yep, we're good. Hold me to this, is how somberly I take this promise I'm making. But in the dream that God has with Abraham, God arranges everything. The rows are set. The blood is spilled. The animal carcasses are there. And yet God, in the form of a torch, passes through them by himself. Saying this promise is not dependent on you, Abram. It's on me. So for this to happen, and should this be broken, let be done to me what is done to the animals, not what be done to you. This is Paul's point, right? The point of the law coming way, way, way after the promise is that the promise can't be sort of made, sealed, and done, and then altered later on, over 400 years later, by God saying, well, we're going to change the terms of this a little bit. You do have to obey 613 of these laws that I've given to you, okay? And yet, people still revert to the second option. That's been the problem in Galatia. That's been the problem with what these teachers are trying to bring into it. I've got to do something to earn the favor and the love of God. I've got to think like all the nations around me, which has been Israel's problem all the time. And I've got to do something to ascend my way to God when the whole point of the law has been, how is God going to make his way to us? This is why the timing of the law matters so much. Because in chapter 17, God said, without any law in place, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. No asterisks. I will make you into nations. No asterisks. Kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. No asterisks to be applied 430 years later when they get to Mount Sinai. That's not the way this promise works. It's been ratified. It's been set. It's a done deal. And if this only feels like a point for the Old Testament Israelites, then maybe we're thinking, uh, we're just missing the way that Paul often uses the word while. He says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more shall we be saved by his life. Do you see what he's doing with the while? He's making the exact same point. If the promise came when you weren't faithful to something, why then do you think that you being faithful to it is the way to make sure God keeps his promise? 
It's not the way he makes promises. He bases them on him, not on you. So if you back up for a second, we just take these three things that are said. Have you felt weak lately? Have you felt your strength, your emotional reserve, that natural joy? Have you felt weak? Have you at all felt sinful? Have you seen patterns come up in you, the way you speak, the way you think, stuff that you do, that, that habit you return back to, and you're like, why is that me? Have you felt out of fellowship with God? Almost to the point that if you were to show up, you wouldn't necessarily feel like you were a friend, but you were this unreconciled kind of enemy of God's. What do you do? Well, if you forget the word while, you're going to botch this every single time. Because you're going to say, God will love me once I'm strong. God will love me once I'm purified. God will love me once I've done enough in order to earn his friendship back. But if you hear the while, then in your weakness, you can come to God. In your sinfulness, you can come to God. In your sense of hostility and distance from God, you can still come to God. And the Galatians weren't. And Paul's like, that's not the gospel. Earn your way, ascend the mountain isn't good news. So we got to get who the law was about, the target of it. We got to get when the law was kind of brought about, the timing of it. And lastly, we do have to get to the why is the law. The question of what is the law there for? He's going to answer that question this week and next week. It's a two-parter. It just... Just assume there's always a teaser. There's always something coming next because we're still in the middle of the book. That's the way books work. But here he asks the actual question, right? This is a question we led with. Why then the law? And his first answer is if you can get that this was about Jesus and if you can get that it came in the timing and in the order that it did and you don't get the cart before the horse, then understand this. The law also was because of all those big red marks across the story. It was because of transgressions. Why are speed limits what they are? Because people go too fast. Why are stoplights invented and put in places where they are? Because people get in wrecks. It's because of the sin and the need to restrict speed, to restrict accidents. And yet sometimes we feel Kind of weird, like if you realize you go to Arkansas and you're a resident of the state, it's illegal to say Arkansas or Kansas. Or you, it's illegal apparently in Arkansas to mispronounce the state name. At least this is what the internet told me, and it never lies. In Connecticut, pickles must bounce in order for them to be able to be sold. You cannot sell a squishy pickle, which I think is a great law, and that should probably apply all over the place. And in Indiana, as we just had on Friday the 13th ourselves, in Indiana, on Friday the 13th, apparently all black cats had to wear bells so that you could know you weren't going to cross their path. Doesn't the Old Testament law sometimes feel that way? You're like, what in the world was all that about? Here's the interesting thing, and we didn't do a 70-slide sermon, so I'm not going to show this to you, okay, for, for poor Isaac's sake. But almost every time that God introduced laws and the whole narrative of the Old Testament, it was because sins had taken place. Now, sometimes God preemptively tells people something, and then they break the law, and he's like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do in response to that. Here's what we're going to do in response to that. Here's what we're going to do in response to that. There is a sense of the progressively revealing nature of God through his law that is kind of important to get down. And Paul sums that up by saying, it's because of transgressions, guys. It's the transgression of the law that is the why of the law. But then he, he points out something else in terms of how these work. And it kind of borrows from his past point. He says there in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions, 
but with a, with a timing factor to it as well. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. In other words, here's the point he's trying to make. The promise God made to Abraham, what was that in terms of a whisper down the lane conversation? It was one whisper. God whispers to Abraham, right? That seems a better way of communicating, right? And yet, what we understand here is that the law actually came kind of in some sense of mediated by angels, mediated to Moses, mediated from Moses to the people of Israel. That's a, that's a few whispers down the lane there, right? It's not just God to the people, just like at the Ten Commandments. That was, that was awesome, except for what did the people say when that happened? God whispers too loud and too scary. We cannot listen to him. Moses, you go, we can't take it, or we're going to die. And so there are filters laid in. This is the law is given this way. It's given then to Moses. It's given then that way to the people of God. And what Paul's saying here then is, well, if, if that's the case, is, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He's like, no, 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 no. The fact that we can take this whole thing of the law, we can look at it, and we can twist it around into something that becomes precious to us, that boosts our ego, that makes us feel like, you know, just that way we want to feel, that we're important, I'm better than you because I've done better at the law than you did, or I'm enough, so I'm kind of like the little orphan Annie. Why did God adopt me? Well, he adopted me because of my precious little curls and my great adherence to the law. Why do we do that? Is it because the law is set contrary to God's promise? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But he says, there are a few things we want to get down. But remember this, what we heard in Hebrews. It's impossible for God to lie. So the fact that we can twist around what God reveals to us is not saying then that what God said in the very beginning was somehow either contrary to his promise or that it was going to be unnecessary because he had made a previous promise. Instead, God is restraining us from sin, but he's still reminding us that we wanted life and we wanted righteousness and we wanted freedom. And he does that by saying that there was a certain sense in which we didn't have it. He says, for if the law had been that could give life, and in saying that, he reminds us there isn't, but if there was a law that in the obeying of it would make you alive to God, well, then maybe it would be contrary. Because then righteousness, the sense of everything being just the way it ought to be and right with God, it could indeed be by the law. And don't you so deeply want that? Don't you just want to feel alive, fully alive to God, fully right with God? If the law did that, and if the law worked that way, then we wouldn't have needed the promise because you could have done it all by yourself. If Abram could have made his way through those, those animals, and if Abraham could have somehow secured the promise by his behavior, then we wouldn't need God to be the one who justified, the one who actually makes everything right by his doing and not by ours. But that's not the way it works. Instead, verse 22, and I got to say, this is a tough way to end this sermon, but this is where we're ending. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, the same law that sets up the speed limits and stoplights of your life is also the law that at times sends you to prison and has you looking over, your cor over the corner and in the rearview mirror for police all the time. It's the thing that leaves you a little terrified. Because that's the problem when people can't obey the law. They're always nervous about what happens whenever they break it. And it leaves us, Paul's words, imprisoned. 
bound up and chained in a process that we need because of our sin, but is so unsatisfying in and of itself at the end of the day, and that's why Paul's going, it's not the gospel to try and get to God that way. It's not good to try and earn God's favor, so give it up. But it's also why we have hope in Jesus. It's hope that's expressed in this, our very last slide. So, well done, Isaac, I got to say. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Now, you see, I thought the worship team was going to get the cue. We talked about this beforehand. Last week, I had to be super obvious in saying, all right, it's time for you to come up on the stage because that's what they asked for. And I was like, last week was a little obvious. It was a little on the nose. And they were like, yeah, it was way too on the nose. So when I say, this is our last slide, I'm given a hint. Hey, if you're the worship team and you want to come back up on the stage, this might be the time to do it. We're going to find our way through this stuff a little bit, but apparently we're somewhere in between those two options right there. Last slide, and here we go. You're welcome, Keith. (laughs) I do what I can to support and help you. Great quote. Here it is. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, and my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing law, how can it be that you, my law, would justify me? That is not the way the song ends. It's amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would pass through the bodies and say, let that be done to me? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are not treating us as our sins deserve, but we're also so grateful you're not treating us as our obedience deserves. We're so grateful that a blessing can come through a promise to Abraham. To us. And we're so grateful that though we keep running back to it, trying to earn your favor through our obedience, you've taken the curse that that would earn on us and you placed it on Christ. Sending it far away and letting, a, letting us, through his precious blood, come into your presence. In our weakness, in our sin, in our anger, you haven't left us alone, but you draw us near to make us like you. We're so grateful for this good news. To help us to live in it this week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing and celebrate this great.